thanks Ben, for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we welcome Dr. Ami Bhatt, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at the American College of Cardiology. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what your highlights are in this role? What are you hoping to accomplish? So um, the American College of Cardiology, uh, one of the largest uh, member organizations for cardiologists in the world, we, we span about 56,000 members and now 143 countries. So um, I, I always like to remind people of that it's a global organization. But one of our goals is really, you know, we've always had a model of healthcare that's very um, hospital or office centric. And we have patients who come to the providers, if you will, or the clinicians. And really thinking about how we're going to achieve both population health and personalized health, right? Which when you say them together, you're not sure you can actually do that, but in fact we can. In order to do either or both of those, you need to be in the community. And so our program as the chief innovation officer and then with my innovation program team, our goal is really to create sustainable, scalable cardiovascular care in the communities where people live. The thing we realize is in order to do that, we need to use technology, specifically digital health. And so what we do is we spend each day talking to individuals or companies um, that are active in either technology or in infrastructure, in investment capital, or in community partnerships, all of which are necessary to be able to get that level of healthcare into the community. And so, and that's kind of what we do. It's something that's really important to you because you actually started a virtual care program in 2013, which is unbelievable, far, far before the pandemic. <laughs> so what made you realize that this was so important in your work? Uh, you know, um, some people say necessity is the mother in, of invention. And, and my phrase at that time was uh, desperation is the mother of adoption. So um, I took care of adults with congenital heart disease. And what we found is uh, if you're a young person with adult con with congenital heart disease and you grow up, once you go to college, just think of the average person, never mind having a chronic disease. How many of us regularly see our physicians, our nurses, our care team during our 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? Other things take priority, even though sometimes they shouldn't. We're trying to change how that looks. But then if you add to that, that you've had repeated either interventions or visits or illnesses, you do face a lot of health-related anxiety. And the idea of going back to find out when the other shoe's gonna drop is challenging. And so we found in the uh, kind of early 2000s that even though we had more adults than children with congenital heart disease, many were not seeking care partly because our subspecialty wasn't yet fully grown. And so you couldn't find those few individuals who knew how to do that kind of care that has changed now, partly because that kind of care existed in major metropolitan centers. And not everybody with that disease lives in a major metropolitan center. That's true for many diseases. And then partly because you're busy and you don't wanna know. And so in order to really engage my patient population better, average age at that time of my patient population was maybe 28 to 32, the idea of being able to use telemedicine or to, you know, at least do face-to-face -face video visits and allow people to be in the comfort of their own home, on their own home turf, as my equal, which they are in the office and yet they're in the gown and I'm not, right? So, so I can treat them as equally as I can and yet the structure of the hospital does not necessarily say you're equal to the patient. And so really doing that enabled us to both get more people into care, but also have patients start to engage better 
with their own care and have patient agency. And I think um, those are all the things that drove me. You know, so your question is, you did telemedicine before, now I do digital health, yes. But I think really the thread through all of that is I wanted patient agency in the community where my patients lived then, and I still want that now. Wow, tremendous, Ami. Very uh, inspiring to hear about that journey. And, and I guess it's a lot to unpack. I'm, I'm still thinking about your, your tagline here uh, with the American College of Cardiology, which is the scalable, sustainable care in the community. Uh, in specifically in that regard, I guess what's hitting me is, is the thought, what is it that really prevents that from happening uh, that allows maybe an innovator like yourself to come in and say, we can do it a little bit differently? Because I suspect it's not quite the tools. I'm sure, I'm sure you're bringing tools and technology, but what else is it that you're bringing along with that that's allowing you to create that sustainability and scalability? Yeah, you know, I think it's, um, so, so globally, I think it's the breaking down of silos. Um, so the idea that any one of us can do this alone um, is where we've fallen down again and again. We have a great technology. It's perfect for you. And it may be, but if it doesn't fit into the workflow of the clinician in that community, and if you don't have the tools to create the new framework that is clinician-centric and that they can adapt to it from what they're doing now and still patient-centric, you can't do that. So creating frameworks is really an essence of, of what we do because we know what clinical models of care look like and we know what they can look like and where technology fits in. And so I think that's been a really important part of helping the technology and the companies get to that patient, right? Cover that last mile. However, that can create a successful model in just one clinic maybe sustainable once you create the framework, right? So now we get to sustainability. The framework is there. Once you have a framework, something lasts the same way forever, whether good or bad. You create a bad hobbit in your golf swing, that is staying with you for a very long time, right? So similarly, you create a bad habit in your framework. But if you create the right framework, um, you have sustainability. Um, I'll pause there for a second and say, recognizing the golf swing or tennis swing or whatever analogy you want to use, um, it is important to be flexible in that framework. And we used to really say, this is the way it's done. And so creating agile frameworks is important. So modular things, anybody can do this, right? Multiple people being able to do the same work, right? And so a lot of that is really important in, in creating the framework. So framework for sustainability, scalability, different, not just the framework. For that, you need infrastructure. And that's where if you look around, you see that there are both healthcare institutions, but also non-traditional healthcare institutions. We hear this about CVS, right? Or Walgreens um, or Best Buy a lot. They are within seven to 10 miles of any place in the United States and Canada, right? Of, of any community. Using the infrastructure of places that already exist to then deliver that care is really important. When you have those kind of models to then partner with them and be in the community is essential. And then to partner with trusted parts of the community. And so, you know, the barbershop model, barbershop model worked very well for hypertension control. Um, however, how do you scale that kind of a model, right? And if you have to go from one community to the next, you recognize each community needs to engage their community partners and we try and help do that. But at the same time, we also try and bring something to each of those communities that is somewhat standardized 
so that everybody can at least approach it in the same way. You may have different players who are there doing the work, but if you standardize the approach, and so a framework for the actual clinical care, incorporating technology, and then standardizing what you're bringing into a community so that no matter who it is, or let's say there's changeover in the community players, it doesn't matter, you can still continue that care. And I think that's how we get to sustainable and scalable. So it's a lot about partnership. And then it's a lot about knowing how cardiology is practiced and how it's practiced differently and respecting that. Oh, phenomenal. I love that. I think you've gave, given an excellent lesson uh, to all aspiring entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, administrators, and, and it's I love it, the simplicity of the ideas of the framework uh, to create sustainability, and then uh, how do you create scalability. I, 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 in addition to that, I guess what I would like to maybe tease out then, uh, Ami, is how do you bring in the human factors? You mentioned the partnerships. I suspect that's kind of where you're getting at relationships. But can you talk about that? How do you scale that element of the trust that needs to come in uh, with individuals as well as with partners and communities? Uh, please uh, help us understand that piece. Yeah, you know, trust is such an interesting thing. I had a patient who needed his um, third heart surgery. And I was so certain that I needed to sit with him and hold his hand and tell him um, that I kept telling the secretary, like, just find a time that works, find a time that works. And finally, he reached out and said, no, I want to do this over telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had to relent because it was getting awkward, right, talking with your patient. And so I did. And after we did the visit, uh, he said, thank you. He said, I know this was uncomfortable for you. What, what a thing for your patient to say, no, wow. this was uncomfortable, right? I know this was uncomfortable for you, but I needed to be here with my family and my children because they are the reason that I'll have a third open heart surgery. And it just, I mean, turned my world upside down. I had already been, you know, gung-ho telemedicine but I hadn't fully understood what telemedicine meant about the relationship with your patient, respecting your patient, knowing what they need, respecting that they know what they need. And so I will start by telling that story only because we often say, are we going to have enough foot soldiers, right? Do we have enough people on the ground to care for all of the population health needs that need to happen? And the answer is they are caring for themselves. This is patient and community agency, right? Um, It is the teach the teacher model, if you will. Those communities need to become healthier communities. We need to have enough people to teach them how to do it, to give the right tools, um, to have the right access, to have the right models. But do you need a one-to-one kind of doctor-patient ratio out there? It's just not feasible. Um, We're short on doctors and nurses um, and allied health professionals right now. So what we really need to do is we need to increase patient agency. Part of that is health literacy and digital literacy. Um, And so there are many different aspects to how you make a community more healthy. Um, And a lot of it actually overlaps with really thinking about drivers of health. So public health and medicine are not considered two separate entities anymore. It unfortunately took COVID to get us to the point where everybody believes that. we have a we're a public health family, so we've believed that for a long time. But I think it's important to recognize that that human connection, yes, is partly with a physician or a nurse who cares for you or her as your primary care, but it's also partly with the community. It's partly with the local pharmacist. And so 
as long as we know that we're building in human connection somewhere, that's important. But I think if we do community and patient agency right, nobody's going to not trust because you yourselves have been given the tools to take care of the health of that community. And then when people get ill despite the health of that community, that's when you have the ivory tower, the metropolitan mm -hmm. hospital, the local community hospital with the respected physicians and nurses. They're ready to receive you. Who, by the way, are able to receive you faster and in a better way and ideally in a less burned out way because a lot of the basic health needs have been cared for in the community where you live already. How do you tap into those networks? Because it obviously is incredibly collaborative to be able to, first, it's not just you and the patient, it is getting everybody on board from the hospitals or the clinics around you to the pharmacists and getting everybody on that same page. So how do you get everybody into this and realize this is one big collaborative, you know, mesh that we're all weaved into? Yeah. So the, the, you know, one third or less of patients who are in some form of value-based care becomes a lot easier, right? Whether that's um, through an institution, whether that's, you know, through Medicare, whatever it might be, Medicare Advantage. Um, I think that's, that's an area where everybody's all in because the community's health, you know, is the, is the health of the economy as well in that, those areas. Let's go to the other area, which is what I think you're getting at, Stephanie, right? In your typical fee-for-service model, you have people who have competing interests. Um, one might be actually market share. We don't like to think of patients as consumers, and we don't like to think of delivering patient care as market share, but in a way it is. And so we have to ensure that we're thinking about the health of a city, of a community, of an area, of a state, and collaborate to do that. Um, the second is we really do need to recognize um, that every part of the community caring for these patients is equally important. And that does mean moving away from a paternalistic physician-centric model. And we're getting there. We're not fully there yet. So it's also some culture change. And some areas are moving faster in the globe um, in that direction, and some areas aren't. Partly, sometimes it's also based on the educational opportunities given to different role groups. Um, and so that's one area where we really emphasize that team-based care is actually the only way for us to be able to successfully do this and move forward. Um, and that team can be comprised of many different people in different areas. And so you have to get to know the area. Um, you have to get to know the people who know the area the best, meet with them and then listen. We spend a lot of time on listening tours at the American College of Cardiology. Just listen, because people know what they need, what their community needs, how things will work and what won't work. And if you don't spend the time listening, you will end up recreating some wheel that will be unsuccessful. And so a lot of time listening and accepting that there's be gonna be variability. You can't have the exact same model, but if you have the right structure and the framework that is flexible enough to allow for an LPN to do something that a pharmacist may do somewhere else, um, that a family member might do somewhere else, that a physician might do somewhere else, that's okay. You just need to have the right person for that community doing that thing the right location for certain testing to happen, the right transport mode to be able to get patients from where they are, whether it's a company like Dispatch Health that goes and you know, delivers care directly to the patient or whether you're talking about an association with one of the rideshare companies that brings you to an institution, right? So we have to think about all those different parts of how do we interact and who are the people who make healthcare happen. 
resonating with so much of what you had to say. One one particular part of what you said, sort of getting out of the paternalism of the physician-patient relationship is, I guess, what really strikes me because you're doing this innovation within the context of this august institution of the American College of Cardiology, not only physicians, but now they're specialists. And you're talking about moving a lot of expertise out of the specialists' minds and hands into the community. And I just wonder, you know, even though it may be the right thing to do and feel right, are you feeling like you're going to be encountering resistance in that? I think you alluded a little bit to change management that needs to happen. But talk to us, please, a little bit about how it feels to the specialists who have been uh, the, the focus of the organization and now what you're trying to shift the focus to a little bit more on the population health and patient-based side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you ask the average cardiovascular practice, so I was um, outpatient director at Mass General for, for six years, um, the number of patients who need to see a cardiologist, um, uh, you know, uh, rivals what you can fill a stadium with, right? It's just on any given day. It, it, they're just, they keep coming. Um, and it's very hard to take that volume of patients and to fully understand who needs to be seen first in what amount of time by with which physician. And there are companies and there are institutions and we're all working on figuring that out. But what we do understand is that the 20 plus years that subspecialists especially, which is what you're asking about, spend getting to their specific knowledge base in which they know more, have seen more, and can therefore really use that clinical acumen and exercise their judgment and have fun with the thing they learned to do. That is used a minority of the time by a lot of physicians, nurses, allied health professionals because of the volume of, volume of low acuity population health that needs to be done. And so we can't call it a primary care problem because it's not, it's just a population health problem. We really need to move more of the low acuity chronic disease management into the communities where people live, allowing their communities, by the way, to then have better engagement because people are there more, hourly wage workers are around, they're using the area that they live in, right? The communities will be richer for it. The kids see their parents more and vice versa. So really taking chronic disease management and low acuity care moving into the communities where patients live, and then allowing moderate disease to be able to follow, be followed intermittently and have a good framework of going between the community and uh, an advanced institution, whatever that might be, and then allowing the high acuity procedures to be done at the institutions that are able to do that, that have the volume, that have the practice, that have the ability. And when you create that kind of a pyramid model, if you will, um, what happens is we know this, the clinicians who have that super expertise are happier because all those years of training of the thing that they were meant to do is what they're spending more of their time doing. It does not mean that they're not happy to care for low acuity or chronic disease management. But after all those years of training to be able to exercise that clinical acumen, that knowledge, um, it puts a smile on their faces because that's what they're that's what they're there to do. That's what they studied to do. Um, and so, you know, any good clinician will care for anybody who walks in the door. That is why we do this. 
However, to actually maybe address clinician burnout somewhat, yeah, there is administrative burden, there are other things, but part of it is just really feeling needed and valued for the thing that you love to do the most. Um, and I think that's probably the most important message that we try to give to our members, which is the work that we're doing is to enable our patients to be healthier, but also to enable you to work to, and I don't wanna to say top of license because it's not about the licensure or the type of procedure. It's about the passion for doing that thing that you decided to spend so many years to study and do. And we want you to be able to do that. And so I think that's the message if there's a message to get out there um, that helps those specialists understand why this will actually be good for everybody, I think, when we get there. Incredible. I love that. It sounds like you have amazing goals that are definitely going to change the way that patients are receiving care and hopefully more people are receiving the care that they need. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Ami, um, you bring this together in such a profound way. I think uh, I could listen to this interview probably five times, and I'm sure I'm going to still be learning. Uh, I hope our audience will enjoy it. Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.